I became interested in transubstantiation just as a metaphysical um, issue. So what's what is it? What's it supposed to be? How's it supposed to work? And so on. And um, found that it was uh, quite difficult to understand. And at some point in my uh, trying to figure it out, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dennis DeShane, said, well, you know, Descartes had a view, had views on transubstantiation. I had no idea. Uh, and so I read Descartes. I read what Descartes had to say about transubstantiation. And this pushed, pushed me even more into the, um, uh, in, uh, into the metaphysics of it. Um, so... Today I want to talk about Descartes' views. I, I will fill in some of the back, some of the historical background. Um, Sydney will can correct me uh, correct me when I go when I go wrong on this. But you know I've been reading like crazy, so you'll have a tough time. <laughs> Anyone that can get through Marilyn Adams' book and and still talk coherently about it, it's, you know, deserves some kind of credit. Okay, one so I'm going to read part of this and summarize part of this. One important strand in the evolution of medieval metaphysics was the gradual erosion of fundamental Aristotelian tenets in response to pressures from two sources, the church and later the sciences, especially astronomy and physics. The vestigial Aristotelianism that remained influential at least through the 16th century would scarcely have been recognized by Aristotle. Early on, the task of squaring metaphysics with church doctrine compelled philosophers to entertain possibilities quite at odds with core Aristotelian precepts. Ironically, some of these modifications paved the way for later scientific innovations that further undermined Aristotelianism. An example of what I have in mind is the emergence of interest in the void which uh, resulted from pressures to dis distinguish what was naturally possible from what was possible for an omnipotent agent. Aristotelian metaphysics proscribed the void, no voids, but such a proscription might be thought to impose arbitrary limits on omnipotence. Consideration of the void opened the way to a rethinking of Aristotelian conceptions of the motion of bodies in space. Um, so Edward Grant has a great book on the void, an awesome book that I highly recommend, The History of the Void. Quite impressive. Uh, a second example, one that will take center stage here, concerns ongoing attempts to work out the metaphysics of the Eucharist. Um, the question how, despite appearances, Christ could nevertheless be present on the altar was much discussed, at least from the 4th century on culminating in the 13th century in Lateran IV's proclamation that in the Eucharist, bread and wine are converted or transformed, transubstantiated, into the body and blood of Christ. Christ's body and blood are present on the altar under the forms of the bread and wine. Later in the same century, Aquinas put together a metaphysical account meant to accommodate this real presence, an account that came in time to take on the force of received doctrine. Although the received doctrine required serious modification of Aristotle's metaphysics, it remained embedded in a fundamentally Aristotelian worldview. By the 17th century, that worldview had come under sustained attack. The universe of Galileo and Descartes differed dramatically from the universe of Aristotle and Aquinas. Descartes sums this up in a letter to Mersenne in January 1641. And this is, I quote Descartes here, I hope that readers will gradually get used to my principles and recognize their truth before they notice they destroy the principles of Aristotle. Abandoning the Aristotelian framework, however, meant risking ecclesiastical reprisal when settled metaphysical accounts of phenomena important to the church were undermined. So it was with Cartesian metaphysics and the Eucharist. Although Aquinas' approach to the Eucharist took liberties with Aristotelianism, Aquinas remained squarely in Aristotle's camp. This was not an option for Descartes. The Cartesian picture of the material universe is starkly incompatible with approaches to the Eucharist of the kind defended by Aquinas. In what follows, I explain why this is so, discuss Descartes' attempt to provide an alternative to the received doctrine, which he regarded as incoherent, and conclude that 
conclude with some remarks on the historical repercussions of Descartes' efforts. I'm not going to do this entire paper, by the way. Those of you who have a copy and might be depressed looking ahead, <laughs> so don't worry. Um, all right, so Descartes' meditations together with Lamont and uh, principles of philosophy provides the, a metaphysical sca scaffolding for the scientific investigation of the material world. Descartes accepts an ontology of substances and modes. Substances are property bearers, capable of independent existence. Modes, Descartes, what, these were Descartes' properties, are not universals. Modes are abstract particulars, particular ways particular substances are. A mode is dependent on the substance of which it is a mode. The sphericity of this ball is the sphericity of this ball. Socrates' paleness is Socrates' paleness. A mode can be separated from a substance in which it inheres only in thought. You can attend to or consider the ball's sphericity without attending to the ball itself, just as you can consider or attend to Socrates without considering his paleness. But the ball's sphericity could not survive the demise of the ball, and Socrates' paleness ceases to exist when Socrates does. Um, I talk about sphericity, and I give a, ta a talk at Monash University uh, earlier this year in March, and Lloyd Humberston, Lloyd Humberston came up to me afterwards and said he doubted, he thought sphericity was the wrong term. It should be sphericality. <laughs> uh, it turns out, I checked this out with the OED, both, are, both sphericity and sphericality are described as the spherical way, uh, but I'm curious if anybody else has. I'm, I'm waiting to learn more on this. I, it makes me nervous when somebody like Lloyd Humberston tells you something like this. It shakes you up. Uh, other people, maybe not. But. <clears throat> on one plausible reading of Descartes, there is a single extended substance, space itself. Material objects are abstractions, geometrically circumscribed regions of space. Ordinary objects are modes of the one extended substance, particular ways of being extended. Although balls, trees, planets, quantities of bread and wine are not substances, such things can be treated as substances. The deep story about ordinary objects is that they are really modes. Fully particular ways, the fundamental substance is extended. They amount to what Keith Campbell calls substances by courtesy. Um, a term I actually got from Charlie Martin, are quasi-substances. Their properties are properties by courtesy, quasi-properties. Now, all this, although this distinction is crucially important for metaphysics, it doesn't play a role in anything I'm going to be talking about today. Um, so uh, you can think of Descartes as embracing the thesis that there is one material substance, but many material objects, and we're hence, I will henceforth just talk about material objects. In addition to extended material substance, Descartes posits immaterial substances, selves or souls. A human being is a body united with a soul. The material makeup of a human body changes continuously. Particles come and go. The body's identity over time is determined by the soul with which it is united. This strand of Descartes' dualism will come into play presently. This will be important to under, for understanding Descartes. Because Descartes' views on the nature of the soul, and for that matter, the nature of God, figure only indirectly in what follows, I shall set them to one side. For purposes of this discussion, two features of Descartes' metaphysics occupy center stage. First, Descartes is committed to a conception of properties as modes. Properties of material bodies are ultimately a geometrical or ultimately geometrical ways those bodies are extended. Second, Descartes takes ordinary material bodies to be modes of an extended substance. These commitments apparently place him at odds with certain church doctrines, most particularly doctrines pertaining to transubstantiation. What transpired in the Eucharist when bread and wine are miraculously converted into Christ's body and blood? I shall begin by discussing an account of transubstantiation that I take to be the received account. It is certainly the account that Descartes and his discussants and 
the texts that I'm dealing with here are Descartes' response to Arnaud in the fourth um, replies that were published with the Meditations and uh, uh, correspondence that Descartes had with Melan. Um, and it's the account that I'm talking about is certainly the account that they're taking for granted. Uh, in so doing, I shall ignore various twists and turns in the development of Eucharistic metaphysics. My concern is uh, with what Descartes has to say about transubstantiation and what light it sheds, sheds on Cartesian metaphysics. Transubstantiation provides a kind of stress test for the brand of Aristotelianism accepted by the church and, and for Cartesian metaphysics. So I think of transubstantiation as the medieval equivalent of a particle collider. So you take your metaphysical concepts and you put them in there and smash them together and see what comes out, right? If they, if they, if they survive transubstantiation, then uh, you're okay. Okay, first then, the official view of transubstantiation as it emerged in the 13th century during the Fourth Lateran Council. And uh, I, you, on the handout, the first quotation, I'm not going to read this, is from Lateran IV, uh, which was subsequently reaffirmed uh, by the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century. And this is what, this is the formulation that, uh, that, comes out of the Council of Trent. By the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. Okay. So we've got the whole conversion. I mean, as far as I know in Aristotelian metaphysics, there's no, there's no concept of conversion, right? I mean, there's, we have, um, we have substantial forms coming and going on. We have change of that kind occurring, um, but there's nothing like conversion in which the entire substance is converted into another substance. There's no underlying, there's no underlying uh, material uh, stratum. There's no, there's no prime matter that survives this. Who knows how this is supposed to work? Um, but what exactly occurs when portions of bread and wine are miraculously converted? This is, this comes from Descartes. Here's Descartes quoting Arnaud in the fourth replies. We believe on faith that the substance of the bread is taken away from the bread of the Eucharist and only the accidents remain. Okay, now I'm not going to quote. I have some quotations from Patrick Toner and various other people. These are uh, quotations four and five. But the basic idea is this. This comes from Aquinas. Uh, what happens in transubstantiation is the, the substance of the bread and wine go away and the accidents survive. The properties survive. However, those accidents are not accidents of any substance. They're not accidents of Christ. They don't become, Christ doesn't take on the substance role and become white or sweet or whatever it is, bitter, the wine, red. Uh, uh, rather, these accidents inhere in no substance. <clears throat> now, Aquinas thinks they hear, inhere in the dimensive quantity of the substance. This is controversial. I mean, something that Aquinas um, held and became uh, a prominent view. Others denied that this could happen. But the basic idea that everyone seemed to hold was that the accident survived and the substance went away. Okay. And what follows, I shall distinguish, as Descartes does, what I introduced as the official doctrine, the doctrine explicitly set out in Lateran IV and seconded by the Council of Trent, and what I've called the received doctrine. The received doctrine includes the gloss provided by uh, Arnaud, a doctrine taken to be implied by the official doctrine. Okay, so we have the official doctrine that just says there's a there's a transubstantiation, and then we have this additional um, gloss on that doctrine that says, okay, so here's what's going on: the substances are removed, and but the accidents remained, and Christ's body and blood then appear under the forms of, under the accidents of the bread and wine. Okay. So the official doctrine includes two components. This is the A and the 
P component, the absence of the bread and wine in the consecrated host and the presence of Christ in or under the host and away or the properties, the accidents that does not require Christ taking on the properties of the host. Okay. You can get a feel for the received doctrine by starting with the idea that quantities of bread and wine are substances that possess various properties, various individual accidents. The wine is red, liquid, and has a distinctive taste. The bread is white, solid, and disc-shaped. Characteristics of the bread and wine that we apprehend perceptually, however, belong to a special category of accident. They are real accidents. Real accidents are be to be distinguished from familiar Aristotelian accidents or Cartesian modes by the fact that real accidents, but not modes, or accidents traditionally conceived could survive the miraculous subtraction of the substance in which they inhere. Okay, so the the force of real and real accidents is their their race, their beings. So we can we can think of um, uh, a substance as being a real being if it can survive uh, apart from any other substance. So the accidents, these accidents are conceived of as being real because they can survive uh, independently of any other substance. They can survive the removal of the substance in which they originally inhere. Focus for a moment on the bread. According to the received doctrine in the Eucharist, the substance of the bread is converted into the body of Christ. The bread no longer exists. It's not annihilated, it's converted, okay, that's important. Uh, what exists is a bundle of real accidents that previously belonged to the bread. These accidents are not accidents inhering in any substance, not in the body of Christ, not in the air, not locally in space itself. This, a collection of real accidents, enclosing but not belonging to, not inhering in the body of Christ, is what is sub subsequently administered by the priest. Christ is present, fully present, in or under uh, the host, but not by taking on the substance role, not by bearing the accidents left behind, but in some other way. And so I will say, look, Christ bears the R relation. Christ, it, Christ is there, which is to say he bears the R relation to those accidents. Okay, what's the R relation? There are dis disagreements about what the R relation is. And because there are these disagreements and the, the differences make no difference to me, I'm just giving it, using this notion of an R relation as a placeholder. What I want to work up to is Descartes' account of the R relation, which turns out to be interesting, I think. In the fourth replies, Descartes accepts the miraculous present of presence of Christ in the host, undertake, understanding the R relation to be spatial congruence with the host. What Descartes cannot accept is the expansion of the official doctrine, in particular the metaphysics of real accidents, properties that could survive the subtraction of, of the substance that originally bore them. So Descartes describes Arnaud describing himself <laughs> as saying, thus I, Descartes, do not admit that there are any real accidents, but recognize only modes which are unintelligible apart from some substance for them to inhere in, and hence that they cannot exist without such a substance. Okay. Modes and accidents, as noted at the outset, are not universal, but particularized properties. A mode or an accident is a particular way a particular substance is. Okay. And so on. I'm not going to repeat um, uh, I'm not going to read the rest of that paragraph. You could think of real accidents as scholastic precursors. This, to me, this is important of D.C. Williams tropes. Okay, so D.C. Williams uh, uh, is the first person to use the word trope to stand for uh, these kinds of particularized properties that can exist on their own. In fact, he thinks of substances as being made up, as having tropes as parts. Okay, now. You know, I thought a lot about this and looked carefully, and it seems to me that the best precursor historically to Williams's tropes are the real acts are real accidents. I mean, they look like bundles that do everything that bread does. I mean, they nourish, they you know, they can uh, spoil, they you can eat them, they taste like bread. You know, they look like bread, they walk like bread, they quack.
all that. Um, anyway, so when you're when the substance of the bread and wine are removed, when the substance of the bread is removed, you're left with these properties. Okay. The difference is that in the case of real accidents, these properties came into being inhering in some substance. I mean, that that we've got a substance accident ontology here, and and Williams doesn't want the um, accidents at all. Now, one thing that I don't say in the paper, but is uh, a subtext here, is that Descartes' worries about real accidents could well be worries about D.C. Williams' tropes, I think. I think they're um, quite, uh, Descartes is onto something here. Okay, so I talk a little bit more about real accidents. Let's skip down, do the par final paragraph in this section. Descartes' commitment to modes, together with, with his antipathy toward real accidents, places him at odds with the first component of the received doctrine, the A component up there, the idea that the absence of bread and, and wine requires subtracting the substances while leaving behind the accidents. Okay. What he hopes to show is that this way of understanding tr transubstantiation is optional, that it is in no way required by the official doctrine as laid down by the Council of Trent, or Lateran IV. A much better way of understanding the A component of the Council's doctrine is available, he thinks, and this way of understanding A, the A component, is perfectly consistent with Cartesian physics and metaphysics. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Descartes' two accounts. The first account is much less interesting than the second one, but let's go through it. Let's at least, I'll try to sketch it for you. Descartes' discussion of transubstantiation in the fourth replies presupposes a grasp of his account of our perception of material bodies. Perception, he thinks, so we're trying to account for the appearance of the appearances of bread and wine, right? So perception is of the essence here. Is uh, perception, he thinks, results from our interaction with the surfaces of bodies, not their accidents, real or otherwise. Uh, in this quotation seven, he says, what affects our sen senses is simply and solely the surface that constitutes the limit of the dimension of the body, which is perceived by the senses. For contact with an object takes place only at the surface, and nothing can have an effect on any of our senses except through contact. Bread or wine, for example, are perceived by the senses only insofar as the surface of the bread or wine is in contact with our sense organs, either immediately or via the air or other bodies. Okay. Now, when Descartes talks about the surface of a body, I'm just going to summarize the uh, next bit here. Um, his idea is this. It's not, we're not just talking about the outline of the bread, but we're talking about that if you take the bread itself, the bread is made up of a lot of little particles put together fairly loosely, and there's a lot of air and stuff in there, right? So the surface is this incredibly fine-grained uh, outline of each of the particles of the bread, so to speak, right? So it's ultra ultra fine grains. It's not just the uh, crude outline. And he thinks, too, wine, if you went down to the micro level, you would find that there are a lot of interstices in there, and the surface of the wine includes all those things and so on. Okay. So uh, he said, just to conclude what he says, the surface of the bread is not the area most closely marked out by the outline of an entire piece of bread, but is the surface immediately surrounding its individual particles. Okay. Now, the surface of a body, he thinks, is neither a part of the body nor a part of bodies that surround it. A body's surface is not, for instance, the outermost layer of particles. It's not like a thin um, shell that, that, uh, uh, that's a part of the body. A sur the surface, he says, and I'm quoting him here, is simply the boundary that is conceived to be common to the individual particles and the bodies that surround them. And this boundary has absolutely no reality except a modal one, okay, except a modal one. Now, um, so here's the idea. On the standard view, what happens is the bread and wine go away and, the, uh, and are replaced by the body and blood of Christ. What remains are the accidents, which accounts for our um, perceptions of bread and wine. Uh, what Descartes wants to say is no. What happened? We don't need those accidents. And the idea that the accident survives incoherent for reasons that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, what happens, in fact, is the body, the bread and wine go away. The body and blood of Christ are substituted for them, or they're transformed into 
the body and blood of Christ. But the body and blood of Christ take on the same spatial contours. So the same spatial contours remain, okay? And so we get the same perceptions. There's a miracle here, namely God causing, God's making it the case that the Christ's body and blood can take on the spatial contours that, that were formerly, um, that, you know, the, the bread and the wine formerly had. But, uh, not, but, uh, God does not preserve, um, the accidents, okay? Um, so this is, um, uh, this is Descartes' idea. Well, I mean, he has interesting stuff to say about surfaces, but I'm going to skip that because I want to get to the neat part. <laughs> On this account, transubstantiation involves a surface preserving conversion. The original quantities of bread and wine are miraculously converted into Christ's body and blood, the surfaces of which make them perceptually indistinguishable from the originals. Descartes accepts the miracle of conversion then, but rejects the idea that the absence of the bread and wine require the presence of Christ's body and blood, and the presence of Christ's body and blood require the postulation of free-floating real accidents that enclose without adhering in Christ's body and blood. Okay. All right. Um, now, what Descartes then proceeds to argue uh, in his correspondence with Arnaud is, look, you know, this is this is not what I'm what I'm saying is in violation of the received doctrine, but it's perfectly consistent with uh, the official doctrine. Okay, if we distinguish the received doctrine, which includes this business about real accidents, from the official doctrine, which is just to say that there's this this transformation occurs, my account is perfectly consistent with it. Why should anyone? Why should anyone uh, object to this at uh, at all? All right, uh, and then he speculates on why, how this. So he speculates. So where did this idea of real accidents come from? What 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 other motivation is there for believing in these things called real accidents? Um, I mean, my experience in reading medieval texts is. There's a lot of discussion of these things, and accidents are said to be capable of surviving the subtraction of the substance, but invariably the Eucharist is, is cited as the reason for holding this view. So it's not as though there's an independent, there are independent grounds out there which might lead you to hold uh, such a position. Uh, and he thinks that Descartes is thinking, look, they just didn't think about this very hard. If they had thought about this harder, they could have come up with a better view of what's going on. And here I'm offering them one. Now, he, Descartes thinks that there are at least three reasons why the church should be open to his account and sub, to substitute for the old account. I mean, first place, it's consistent with the official statements. So, but, but firstly, for our purposes, and most importantly, real accidents are metaphysically incoherent. So why would that be? I mean, I've said that he didn't like them, so why not? He says, I'm quoting him here, The human mind cannot think of the accidents of the bread as real, and yet existing apart from its substance, without conceiving of them by employing the notion of a substance. If real accidents, that, no, that's the end of the quotation, were capable of existence apart from substances, they would themselves be substances. Substantial parts of the bread and wine, not accidents, not properties of the bread and wine. Real accidents would ha have to be substantial parts of um, And this would contradict the official doctrine that the whole substance of the bread and the whole substance of the wine uh, cease to exist. So he thinks there's, there's actually the, the, the notion of a real accident is, is going to be troublesome if it turns out that real accidents actually have the characteristics he thinks they do. Namely, they look like little, what A.J. Ayer called junior substances. Because we're supposed, the, 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 um, the A condition up there says, no, the substance of the bread and wine no, is no longer present. But if, if these things actually are little substances, then there's a, a, a problem of inconsistency. Consider, so how, how is this supposed to work? So let me see if I can get you to feel what Descartes is feeling here. Consider the consecrated host that is white and circular. What is white and circular? Not the bread. The bread no long, is no longer present. Certain real accidents, we are told, are white and circular. But something that is white and circular, okay, something that 
is the white way or the circular way is a property substance, not an accident, not a way a substance is, except derivatively. As Socrates is pale by virtue of having a substantial part, his skin that is pale. Okay, so if you try to, if you if you say, okay, there, we've got something here that's white. Well, a something that is white, okay, looks like a substance. This is a point that um, Robert Garcia has made, not quite in the same way. I'm co-opting his point about D.C. Williams type tropes. They look like substances, and if they're not white. If they're not white, if they're not circular, then what is? <laughs> you know, I mean, come, we need something to be these things, to have these properties, right? Um, they look self-exemplifying, right? If they're self-exemplifying, then it looks as they look, they, they begin to look like substances. Hard to distinguish them from substances. The unintelligibility of real accidents, Descartes cautions, provides ammunition for atheists and critics of the church by gratuitously, as he puts it, attaching to the miracle of transubstantiation a new miracle of doubtful coherence. And here I'm quoting him. This is quotation number 16. See, we're already in number 16. We cannot suppose that there are real accidents without gratuitously adding something new and indeed incomprehensible to the miracle of tra the transubstantiation, which can, can be inferred simply from the words of the consecration. The gratuitous addition would involve the alleged real accidents existing apart from the substance of the bread in such a way that they do not thereby themselves become substances. In embracing real accidents, then, ecclesiastical authorities are opening themselves up to attacks on the part of atheists and skeptics for no good reason. Okay, so that's the first reason Descartes thinks that you should go, go with him on this. Second, the doctrine of real accidents assumes, falsely and without argument, that more would be required to account for our perceptions of consecrated bread and wine than that the substances we encounter exhibit surfaces geometrically indistinguishable from those of the original bread and wine. Quite independently of the question of their intelligibility, the real accidents appealed to uh, in the received account play no exp explanatory role whatever. In addition, they, they presuppose a false theory of perception. Now, of course, you have to buy into Car the Cartesian account of perception to, for, this, for this advantage to be perceived as an advantage. Nevertheless, Descartes, we're, the game we're playing is, can we make transubstantiation consistent with Cartesian phys uh, physics? A third reason Descartes thinks you might have for preferring his account to its, is its commendably parsimonious deployment of miracles. The received doctrine and Descartes' replacement agree on the number of miracles called for in the Eucharist. Two, on the received view, there is the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood. And secondly, there's the miraculous preservation of real accidents left behind in the conversion. Descartes accepts the first miracle. His second miracle, however, which is Christ's body and blood taking up resonance beneath the original surfaces of the bread and wine, makes fewer demands on the intellect than does the miraculous preservation of free-floating accidents. And uh, here's what he says. This is, these are quotations 17 and 18. Theologians prefer not to attribute to miracles what can be explained by natural reason. All of these difficulties are completely removed <laughs> by my explanation of the matter. If my explanation of the matter is adopted, for my account, makes it unnecessary to posit a miracle to explain the preservation of the accidents once the substance has been removed. There is nothing incomprehensible or difficult in the supposition that God, the creator of all things, is able to change one substance into another, or in the supposition that the latter substance remains while the same substance surface that contained the former, uh, uh, within the same surface that contained the former one. Both sides agree on the miracle of Christ's presence via the R relation. We've got the R relation, Christ being there under somehow. They differ, however, in the nature of the miracle required for our perception of what, to all appearances, is bread and wine. There is the received, uh, uh, where the received doctrine invokes an un, unintelligible miracle, they, uh, unintelligible according to Descartes, Descartes posits a relatively humdrum miracle, Christ's body and blood taking on the spatial contours of 
the bread and wine. Now, there's another miracle here. There's another aspect of this that is uh, that has so far been unstated, and that is the multiple locatability of Christ's body, because the mass is being said all over the place, and Christ is supposed to be wholly uh, present in all of these places, and Christ is not a uh, universal Christ. Christ's body is a substance, right, and it's said to be wholly present on the on many different altars at the same time. How's that supposed to work, right? Well, you could say uh, Descartes and um, the church are tied on that one. Uh, and as we'll see, Descartes' second account of transubstantiation actually has a nice way of dealing with this, these cases. Descartes ends his discussion in the fourth replies by expressing his hope that, and his, he puts it like this, this is so totally naive, a time will come when the theory of real accidents will be rejected as irrational, incomprehensible, and hazardous to the faith, while my theory will be accepted in its place as certain and indubitable. <laughs> real accidents aside, Descartes' alternative view faces difficulties of its own. Consider the conversion of the bread into Christ's body. By Descartes' own lights, the surface of the bread and Christ's body must be indistinguishable all the way down, right? I mean, you know, we're going all between the little particles and so on. Uh, you know, down to the smallest particle. Given Descartes' purely geometrical physics, this imp implies that the replacements must be physically indiscernible from the originals, molecule for molecule duplicates, as we might put it. Okay, but a molecule for molecule duplicate of bread and wine is bread and wine. It looks as though transubstantiation and Cartesian physics are, after all, incompatible. I mean, you know, if, it, if it's that fine grain, and if all if all there is to a material body is its uh, spatial characteristics. The spatial characteristics uh, are uh, unchanged. Okay. In the fourth replies, okay, now we're getting on to the more interesting stuff. So, um, in the fourth replies, Descartes focuses Descartes focuses on ways of understanding the first component, the A component, the absence component of the received account. Uh, in particular, the doctrine of real accidents. In his letter to Melan, which is what I'm going to be talking about now, Descartes addresses the P component, that is, what it means for Christ to be present, sacramentally present on the altar. Uh, Christ bearing what I call the R relation to the host, okay? Now, Descartes presses, prefaces his remarks by noting that he is under no obligation to explain this mystery, to explain how it could be possible for Christ to be sacramentally present in the host. He is under no obligation to explain the R relation. Nevertheless, I mean, the, the, think, here's the dialectic. Arnaud and, and Descartes' friends are saying, look, just don't go there. Do not go there. And Descartes saying, no, 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 I can do, I can do this. I can do this. You know, and they're saying, no, no, don't go. I can do this. Right. So the, uh, and this is what he says. Uh, as for the manner in which one can conceive the body of Jesus Christ to be in the Blessed Sacrament, I do not think it is for me to explain. Uh, since the Council of Trent teaches that he is there, and this is De, these are Descartes' own italics, in a manner of existence which can scarcely be expressed in words. Even so, so now even so he continues because, and here he, this is Descartes, the council does not say that it cannot be expressed in words, but only that it can scarcely be expressed in words. I will venture to tell you here, in confidence, a manner of explanation, which seems to me very elegant and useful for avoiding the calumny of heretics who object that our belief on this topic is entirely incomprehensible and involves a contradiction. Bear in mind, you know, this is during the Reformation. There's a lot, there are a lot that the Eucharist is a, is a, um, a big deal in uh, the Reformation, and uh, this is in the back of Descartes' mind here, or it's in the forefront, it's not mentioning it. The contradiction Descartes has in mind in this passage is not the miraculous conversion of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, that's non-negotiable, but the idea that such a conversion requires that accidents remain despite the absence of the bread and wine. His argument now will be that rightly understood the R relation, once we get that clear, 
gives the R relation gives us all we need to reconcile transubstantiation and physics. Trans satisfaction of the R relation can be seen to yield the satisfaction of both of these two conditions, the A condition and the P condition, the absence and the presence, uh, as required by the official doctrine. More impressively, the R relation itself does not call for a distinctive miracle. There is a miracle in the vicinity, so to speak, but the miracle in question is a miracle we have the resources to make intelligible. Descartes begins by noting that the word body is very ambiguous. So this, this part was written with Nick in mind, actually. Descartes had you in mind. When we speak in general, and this is quoting Descartes 21, when we speak in general of body, we mean a determinate part of matter, a part of the quantity of which the universe is composed. In this sense, even the smallest amount of that quantity, if the smallest amount of that quantity were removed, we would, ao ipso, judge that the body was smaller and no longer complete. And if any particle of it were changed, we would at once think the body was no longer numerically the same. So we have very high standards for what counts as the same body. Persistence conditions for bodies, considered as quantities of matter, allow for neither addition nor subtraction. In contrast, when it comes to human bodies, we deploy different, more relaxed persistence conditions. When we speak of the body of a man, we do not mean a deter determinate part of matter with a determinate size. We mean simply the whole of the matter joined to the soul of the man. Even though that matter changes and the quantity increases or decreases, we still believe that it is the same body, numerically the same body, provided that it remains joined in substantial union with the same soul. We think of this body as a whole and entire, provided that it has in itself all the dispositions, dispositions required to preserve that union. Okay. Consider a soul in its union with a quantity of matter and call the unifying soul-body relation, the S-relation. So we've got, we now have another relation here, the S-relation. This is the body relation, soul-body relation. Okay, uh, And it's whatever that relation is that uh, unites a soul um, uh, with a body. And so if you thought of matter as being... Descartes is not thinking about this way, but if you thought of, of uh, the material world or your body as being a whole bunch of particles, then what makes them those particles, you know, constitute your body is that they are participants in this S relation to a particular soul. Uh, the quantity of matter could change in endless ways. Parts of it could come and go. Its size and shape could alter dramatically, provided only that it... <laughs> remains in union with the self-same soul, provided only that the matter continues to bear the S relation to the soul. Okay. And quoting him again, 23, we're already to 23. In that sense, a human body can even be called indivisible, because if an arm or a leg of a man is amputated, we think that it is only in, this, in the first sense of body that the body is divided. We do not think that a man who has lost his arm or a leg is less a man than any other. So Descartes' first point is that the identity of a human body depends on the soul to which it bears the S relation, the soul-body relation. You could think of a human body at a given time as an organized, interrelated, dynamic aggregate of particles, the aggregate, namely, to which the soul bears the S relation. Descartes' second point is that a kind of non-miraculous natural transubstantiation occurs in the course of metabolism. In eating bread or drinking wine, this, this is a quotation from Descartes, the small parts of the bread and wine dissolve in our stomach and pass at once into our veins so that they transubstantiate themselves naturally and become parts of our bodies. They enter into the S relation, right? Simply by mixing with the blood. Equipped with enhanced eyesight, you might see that the, what he's calling the small parts of the bread and wine remain numerically the same, even after entering the bloodstream. Thus, 
again quoting him, if we did not consider their union with the soul, we would still call them bread and wine as before. So no miracle is called for in these cases. By being metabolized, bread and wine can come to bear the S relation to a particular soul. They become your body and your blood. The Eucharistic bread and wine could have been transformed uh, naturally into the body and blood of Christ, could have been me metabolized in Christ's body and thereby come to bear the S relation to Christ's soul, had Christ himself eaten the bread and drunk the wine. No mystery there, no miracle. In the Eucharist, Descartes suggests, transubstantiation amounts to a kind of supernatural metabolism. The bread and wine are miraculously metabolized in the body of Christ and thereby come to bear the S relation to Christ's soul. What we identify as bread and wine are Christ's body and blood. Thus, the miraculous transformation that takes place in the Eucharist, and quoting him, this is number 24, consists in nothing but the fact that the particles of bread and wine, which in order for the soul of Jesus Christ to inform them naturally, would have had to mingle with his blood and dispose themselves in certain specific ways, are informed by his soul simply by the power of the words of consecration. The soul of Jesus Christ could not have remained naturally united to each of these particles of bread and wine unless they were united with many others to make up all the organs of a human body necessary for life. But in the sacrament, it remains supernaturally conjoined with each of them, even when they are separated. He concludes that this makes it easy to understand how the body of Jesus Christ is present only once in the whole host when it is undivided and yet is entire in each of its parts when it is divided because all the matter which is together informed by the same human soul large or small as it may be is taken for the entire human body okay so Descartes has an account, has, has a, an independently interesting philosophical account of what it is to, you know, what a, a, a human body is. And he thinks, look, this account generalizes nicely to the Eucharist. We have a miracle here, all right, but uh, we can understand how it might work. The idea then is that the R relation, the basis of Christ's sacramental presence in the host, is the S relation, is that same relation. The S relation affords no mystery, or at least no more mystery, uh, than you have in ordinary cases of mind-body unity. The Eucharist, Eucharistic mystery lies in Christ meta mirac miraculously metabolizing the bread and wine. This is the one and only miracle required for the Eucharist. One reason you might resist this picture, <laughs> I mean, obviously you're ready to go with this, I'm sure. But anyway, one reason you might resist this picture, as you might think, uh, that the matter must have the same shape um, uh, and be numerically identical with the matter of the body that of Christ's body that ascended into heaven. But Descartes insists that this is to confuse persistent conditions for quantities of matter with those for human bodies. It is not necessary for the this is quoting him 26 for the integrity of the human body that it should possess all the exterior members. Uh, with their quantity of matter, and such things are in no way useful or fitting in this sacrament, in which the soul of Jesus Christ informs the, ma the matter of the host so as to be received by men, and so unite himself more closely with them. So, once consecrated, the bread and wine are metabolized, and thus cease to exist as bread and wine. Okay. Um, they can be considered bread and wine. You can look at the particles in your in the bloodstream or whatever. However, they are, just as the bread and wine, once they've been metabolized, are your body or your blood. The A condition is satisfied. Okay? The appearance of bread and wine is explained by the fact that particles of matter that make up the bread and wine retain their identity, qua material particles. These particles no longer constitute bread and wine, however, because they have been supernaturally metabolized. And being metabolized by Christ's body, a body that bears the S relation to Christ's soul, what had been bread and wine becomes Christ's body and blood. So the P relation, the presence relation, is satisfied as well. Christ is present on the altar. 
Now, although Descartes does not expressly say so, his account has three additional benefits. First, it makes sense of the notion of conversion. Okay, what is conversion, right? How's that? We've talked about one substance being converted into another. I find that idea in a hylomorphic, in an Aristotelian metaphysics, completely baffling. Uh, now we can make sense of it as when one, uh, 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 when you eat the, and metabolize bread, the bread is converted into your body. The bread is no longer present. The bread is, as the A condition requires, absent, although it would be misleading to say that it had been annihilated. Second, to the extent that the consecrated host can be identified with Christ's body, the problem of multiple location is finessed. If you were located, wholly located, as Descartes suggests in the passage quoted earlier, wherever any of your material parts are located, Christ is located, wholly located, wherever there is consecrated bread and wine. Third, Eucharistic theology is served by the fact that in partaking of the Eucharistic host, in sharing the bread and cup, communicants come into a special relation with Christ and with one another, a kind of partial identity. Okay. Uh, let me just say uh, one more thing. The denouement. De, de okay. So Descartes offered this account of transubstantiation in a letter to um, uh, uh, yes, right. And um, the uh, and uh, and asked him to ask around. Is this okay? Do you think this would fly in and in ecclesiastical circles, but under no circumstances attribute it to me. So um, uh, Melan uh, went along with this, and uh, that was fine. Descartes was fine. Uh, after Descartes died, however, his letters were collected and published. And uh, this, the, this particular letter was published and uh, created um, uh, lots of problems. And it is this it was this view of the um, of transubstantiation, this account of the Eucharist, that got Descartes in trouble, and what led to his being um, his works being prohibited, his works being proscribed. Okay, uh, Arnaud fought hard against this, but um, uh, nevertheless, they were. He was it, it, the the problem he got into with the church had to do with his not with you know, Copernicanism or physics or whatever, but his attempt to deal, his attempt to offer a, a friendly amendment to <laughs> ecclesiastical doctrine. So that's it. Thank you so, very much. Thank you. Time.